good morning. Uh, my name is Jerry. Sorry, me and microphones don't get along typically, so just making sure everything's right. Um, as Josh said, my name is Jerry Wing. I'm here with Cole. Um, we're from Rock Creek Baptist Church in Southwestern Seminary. We are excited to be here this week, folks. Um, we are very excited to look at what God's Word has to say. I want to bring you greetings on behalf of Rock Creek Baptist Church. Um, even though only a few of our members have met you guys, I want you guys to know we love you. We are regularly praying for you. Um, we care a lot about you and about what God is doing through you uh, here in Idaho. Even though only a few of us have met you, we, we love y'all deeply. And it is very exciting to get to be one of the folks from our church who's met y'all um, at last. So we do want to get to know you guys as much as we can over the next week. I also want to um, say greetings for Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Cole and I are both students there. Um, and uh, you may think that's uh, a little bit uh, of a random thing to say, but it's actually y'all's giving to the cooperative program that helps make our education possible. It keeps our tuition costs down. It keeps our professors uh, fed and clothed and able to teach. So y'all's giving helps contribute to our uh, education, and we are grateful to God for you. Um, where we're going to graduate, Lord willing, both of us uh, here at the end of the year, it's been a long road for both of us, but we're excited to see what uh, God's going to do through the education that y'all have helped provide us. So thank you and greetings from Southwestern Seminary. So we are here this week um, ultimately for two purposes. Um, we're going to be spending a week uh, that we together may grow in our understanding of the gospel. Um, it's a fundamental reality. It's part of our bread and butter, our, our fundamental life as Christians, that we need to understand the gospel. We are hoping that this week is a time when all of us together can learn about what the gospel is, how it applies to our lives, and particularly how God saves people through it. The second thing that we're here um, to do is that we may encourage each other and equip each other to present the gospel to those around us who need to hear it, be that your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving neighbors, the, the folks in your community, and actually to each other as believers, because as I said, the gospel is what strengthens and equips us for our Christian life. It's important that we know it. It's important that we communicate it regularly to each other, and then ultimately to our friends and neighbors around us. But the question is, if I've said that it's important um, what we want to look at this morning is why is it important? Why should we take a week to look at the gospel, to look at how to present the gospel? Why is this important? Now, we, um, speaking together as, as a like-minded church here, um, we're well acquainted with, um, say, the Great Commission in uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus uh, tells his disciples that all authority under heaven has been given to him by the Father. Therefore, go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that God has commanded. This is a command of God that we are to present the gospel. And that is, uh, actually, that should be enough for us um, in the sense that God has commanded it of us. This is something that we are to do. We are to uh, present the gospel to those around us to teach and disciple the nations. But God in his kindness has actually given us more than a simple command. As a gracious, loving God and Father, he's actually um, given us a passage of scripture that opens the hood, if you will, of, of 
why we're supposed to share the gospel, the reasons behind it, what God does with the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 10. We are going to be in verses 1 through 17 this morning. Um, and we're, it's, a, it's a big chunk, but we're going to move through um, a few, uh, it in a few chunks here, a few blocks. Uh, and we're going to look at why we're to share the gospel. Because God has given us clear um, revelation, clear understanding of what he does with it. And this is going to empower us. This is going to fuel everything that we do this week, everything that you go on to do next week with your VBS. Uh, and Lord willing, gospel ministry, gospel proclamation here um, in, in Hayden and, and the surrounding area for years to come. So uh, if you will read along with me, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read all the way through, and then we're going to um, pray and, and begin working through this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say into your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, uh, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that it is good for us, that it is uh, good for your people, um, that this is the means that you use to change our hearts and lives through your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that um, you would be with us um, as we look at um, what this text says, that we would understand it rightly, um, and Lord, that we would um, change our lives and, and obey you regarding what it says. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the gospel. Uh, we thank you for the ability to gather and worship you. It's in the name of your son, we pray. Amen. So the big idea um, that we are going to be looking at in this passage, um, I believe this passage communicates that Christians are told to evangelize because God uses the gospel proclaimed as his way of saving sinners. That's the big idea for everything here. 
We've got some different aspects of that, some different uh, ways that this works out. But the big idea of this text is that Christians are to evangelize because God uses the gospel proclamation to save sinners. It's the way that he does it. Now let's look through um, a few different ways. I've got four um, sort of blocks here that unfold this idea. Um, the first block consists of verses one through four. This is Paul's evangelistic concern. Now we're picking up in the middle of um, a section uh, beginning with Romans 9 where Paul is concerned with um, the fate of the Jewish people um, in his day. So in Romans 1 through 8, Paul unfolds the gospel, unfolds um, how God saves people, what justification is, um, how a person is made right before God, all of these truths, all of these doctrinal truths. But then in Romans 9, he begins dealing with um, some big picture ideas about um, if this is the way God saves people, what does this mean for the Jewish people? Um, why is it that the people who have been given God's word, who have actually been given the Messiah, why haven't they come to know him? And Paul uh, answers these concerns and questions by looking at um, God's sovereignty over salvation, how um, salvation is a work of God. And then um, when we see here him getting into Romans 10, he's picking up with um, sort of the practical application, how this happens in real time. He says, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about a specific group. This is not the first time that Paul uh, in the scriptures expresses concern over a particular group of people. Later this week, we're actually going to be looking at, um, as part of our other work, uh, Acts um, 17 verses 6 through 7, where Paul is uh, basically in a layover. He's waiting for um, some of his friends and, and co-ministers to catch up with him in Athens. And while he's in Athens, he is provoked by the idolatry of the Athenian people, the Greeks, um, as he's going about um, his daily life. So he begins to share the gospel with people everywhere. He's provoked by the idolatry and he begins to share the gospel. Um, in the same way that um, he's kind of localized, provoked, the Jewish people concern is an ongoing thing for Paul. These are his friends, his neighbors, the group that he was saved out of by Christ. Uh, so he's very concerned for them. These people are trying to um, work their way to God. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They need Christ. They need to uh, bow the knee to the gospel, to God, uh, in the way that God has commanded. So this concern is a right and natural reaction for Christians to have for the unbelieving world. So if there's anything in you that is remotely concerned, we want to fan that into a blaze this week, today, because this is what the gospel should be provoking. You should be grateful to God for the grace that he has shown you through his son, and that should also make you concerned for those who are outside of Christ, who have not yet repented and believed the gospel. And that can take any form um, that you want. Um, we know here in um, Idaho, a little bit more so than um, where we're at in Texas, y'all have uh, a, a stronger than, than usual uh, Mormon population here. Um, if, if Mormonism provokes you, Fan that into flame. That's a good concern to have. Not just to say that that's a false religion, but have concern for the people that they need to hear the true gospel that's presented in the scriptures. So we want to fan that into flame. That This is a good 
evangelistic concern. Now, the second um, sort of block here um, is the idea that works righteousness never works. This is uh, the the substance of Paul's concern in verses 5 through 8. I'm actually backing up a little bit uh, to verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, we're going to pause right there because we need to deal with this issue right here before Paul gets practical. Paul is concerned specifically that the Jewish people are trying to work their way to God. And the concern is it never works. There is no work that you can do that can make you right before God. There is no good thing that your friends and neighbors can do to make themselves right before God, ever, period. End of story. Because our guilt um, is a legal guilt in the same way that if I were to commit a crime here in the city and they hauled me to y'all's courthouse and I said, yes, judge, I ran that stoplight and plowed into that car. But I promise never, ever, ever to run another stoplight again, and I will drive safely and whatever else. Just please don't throw me in jail for for running this red light and causing all this damage. The judge would laugh me out of the courtroom, and he would be right to do so because I have a legal guilt that any promise of future better behavior, any times that I obey the law um, in in any kind of sense, isn't going to affect the fact that I've committed a crime and that crime must be paid for. In the same way here, Paul is concerned that we have people who are guilty before God who need his righteousness and they are trying to earn it on their own through their works. Um, and even as he, as he deals with this idea of Christ being the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, that Christ's death, burial, resurrection, the life that he lived is sufficient to save God's people. We don't need to trust in anything else. We don't need to try to add something to it as if we could. And that's his exact point about this uh, kind of confusing section beginning in verse 6. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say to your heart, uh, in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That's kind of a confusing sentence. It's not a passage of scripture that's high on anyone's uh, topical memory list. You know, It's not the thing that you're going to memorize for a Bible reading challenge or anything like that. But the idea that Paul is getting at is that we cannot add anything to what Christ has already done. We cannot descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. There's nothing that you and I can do to add to the fact that he's already been resurrected from the dead. It's nonsense. It's a rhetorical question meant to just communicate the foolishness of trying to add um, to what Christ has done. So we can't, by our good works, in a sense, bring Christ up from the dead to add to the good thing that he's already done for us. On the flip side, we cannot demand more of Christ. Um, who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? They're, they're, uh, God is not obligated to save us and to bow to whatever whims that we have that we would call God to do more than he has already done. He sent his son. He sent um, the prophets and the apostles to give us his word. He has done everything 
that uh, is needed for salvation to occur, to provide the means for salvation. And we cannot demand of him by our good works to condescend to us and do more. We cannot ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. So works righteousness never ever works. And Paul is concerned for his people, for the Jewish people, because they're trying to make uh, a broken machine work for them that will never give them what they need. It will never provide the salvation that they need. But the, he makes a turn here. He makes a turn towards um, uh, this idea of the nearness of redemption. We're entering the third block, and we're going to take some time to really marinate on these last two because Paul's concern, his evangelistic concern for his people, um, is pretty obvious here. Um, his concern that works righteous never works. Um, Josh has walked you all through uh, the Baptist faith and message on justification, and that's concerned with, with this right here. Now we're getting into um, the why of the gospel. And it begins by saying um, that the word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. No one needs to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down, and no one needs to descend into hell to bring Christ up because he's already provided everything we need. And it's here at hand in his word. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here we have the actual encapsulation of the gospel in this text. The two things that Jesus uh, preached when he went out into the wilderness in the beginning of Mark, uh, Mark 1.16, he said, The time has come and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. This is the fundamental encapsulation of the gospel. It's the fundamental message, the, the main point, that you must repent of your sins and believe on Christ. Trust in Christ. Uh, it's a very simple message. It's not, uh, you know, the gospel plus anything. That's the encapsulation, and it's here at hand because of everything God has done uh, in the life, death, resurrection of Christ, and everything God has done to communicate that through his word and through his church. And he goes on to say, uh, for with the heart one believes, uh, excuse, if you just, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're going to be dealing with, um, over the course of this week, the doctrine of conversion. That is, what is the effect that the gospel has on a person's life? Because we see in uh, when Jesus uh, is teaching to his disciples and the people, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul is getting at right here. It's more than just saying Jesus is Lord or I verbally affirm the truths of the gospel. But God actually has to do a work in my heart that I am transformed um, into a life that uh, not merely confesses, but believes and actually lives that out. So we're going to be looking at the doctrine of conversion this week. That's what Paul is getting at here. And we have this promise here in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the, the, the way that we can rest in Christ is his promise that he's actually done everything sufficient for salvation. Everything that we need to be made right before a holy God has been accomplished in Christ. And he's promised us this. 
We don't have to worry if there's something else that we have to do or some form of later revelation or some other extra hoop we ourselves have to jump through. Christ has lived a life that you and I could not live. He died the death that we deserved. He was resurrected uh, gloriously as a testimony of God's acceptance of his sacrifice. It's the whole package. We don't need anything more than this. And we can rest in the promise that that gives. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We also have the promise here in verse 12 uh, that this works for everyone. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So the same gospel that God used to save you is the same gospel that God can use to save your Mormon neighbor, your atheist cousin, your nominal Christian friend who professes Jesus with his mouth but lives a completely contrary lifestyle to Christianity the other six days of the week. The same gospel that saved you, that saved Paul, is good to save the Jewish person who has not yet placed his trust in Christ. And that's powerful, folks. Because when it comes down to sharing the gospel um, and sharing the gospel with different folks, you don't have to learn something different for everyone else. We want to engage in apologetics. We want to give a defense for the faith to those who are in specific religions and specific ways of thought. And that's going to mean um, trying to understand where they're coming from. But when it actually comes to presenting the hope that lies within us, it's the same hope. It's the same hope every time. The same message that saves uh, us can save a Mormon. It can save a Muslim. It can save an atheist. It can save a Buddhist. Same message. One message, all different kinds of people, Jew, Greek, Gentile, whoever it is. God saves through the, this one simple message. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved after God has bestowing his riches on all who call on him. This is the kindness of God, that this is what works. This is what gets the job done. The message of Christ crucified buried and res resurrected according to the scriptures is what saves people. But now we're getting into um, having established this big idea of the, um, the, the pragmatics of the gospel, that it's the gospel proclaimed. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us right here? Um, this last fourth block, the nearness of redemption. So verses uh, 8 through 13 um, really really try to answer this. And we've, we've gone through part of this here. Paul begins this rhetorical section. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? So if God uses the gospel to save, he's going to work us from that back into our lives. How are these people who we're concerned about, who need to hear the gospel, how are they going to believe, call on God, if God saves all those who call upon his name? How are they going to call on his name if they've not believed? You've got to believe. And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? So they've got to hear the gospel in order to believe it, in order to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So there are two concerns here um, that Paul is really going to war with. Um, we can fall into the trap of, 
basically understanding Christianity to be a mystical religion. That God's going to save who he wants to save, and we just got to sit back, let go, and let God get a hold of them. Um, friends, I believe that salvation is a work of God. I believe that he regenerates his people. Um, but I don't believe that he drops a hammer out of heaven on somebody's head as they're walking down the street and bang, they're a Christian now. We don't, we don't say, go sit at home in your room until God comes and talks to you about the gospel and saves you. That's not the way it works. Christianity is not a mystical religion. It's not like Buddhism where you just meditate and try to get to the nothingness that is the universe and let the universe come to you and you become part of it. We don't, we're not passive in this. God saves people through the proclamation of his word. We are not mystics. This is how God draws near. It's through the preaching of the gospel. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, this is uh, an important thing for us to realize today, that as God uses us to preach the gospel, you're going to encounter opposition, as Josh has already talked about. Um, the world, the flesh, and the devil are completely opposed to the message that we preach. And I'm just going to tell you something here. Um, I've gotten the opportunity uh, Cole and I have both had the opportunity to preach the gospel to a variety of people in a variety of situations. And the, the fundamental reality of all of these is that no matter how winsome you can try to be, no matter how you try to cover up the gospel and code it in good stuff, if God's not going to save that person in that moment through, through the, the gospel, it doesn't matter how you try to soft pedal it. If you communicate the gospel, they're going to have a reaction, a negative reaction. Now, they may not necessarily be a jerk to you in that moment, but they're opposed to the gospel. And it's a fundamental reality of the message of the gospel that it is uh, the smell of life to those of us who are being saved, but the stench of death to those um, who are not being saved yet. So we need to accept the occupational hazard of being disliked by the very people we're trying to win, um, as the uh, evangelist Walter Martin once put it. We've got to accept the um, occupational hazard of enduring ridicule, enduring disbelief, enduring abuse, and enduring um, difficulty because of this message that we brought forward. And that's why God uh, inspired the Apostle Paul to reference the Old Testament and say, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Because you are going to be told, if you engage in preaching the gospel, that you are not beautiful. You are rocking the boat. You are, why, why are you being so unloving? Why can't you just live and let live, man? It's just whatever. It's just whatever I want it to be. Why do you got to come at me with this judgment and this concern for right and wrong? Why can't you just leave me alone? Because God saves through the gospel. Because you need to be reconciled to the God that made you. And the only way that happens is if you understand God's character, his goodness, his holiness, and the death of Christ in response to God's holiness and our sin. 
This is the good news, and the people who preach it are beautiful. The feet of those who preach are beautiful. And we need to think about uh, another aspect of why those who preach the gospel have beautiful feet. Because the gospel comes with a myriad of wonderful side effects. People who are transformed by the gospel, on average, don't lie and cheat their neighbors out of um, food and clothing and money that's owed to them, on average. We still sin. Um, Those who are saved still sin. But good stuff happens when lives are transformed by the gospel. People who are transformed by the gospel tend to murder each other a whole lot less. People who um, are transformed by the gospel tend not to blaspheme God or be profane in the public square. There's a whole lot of really good things that happens to people and environments where the gospel comes in. There are whole societies in Southeast Asia that used to be built around cannibalism. And guess what? In those places where the gospel has come in, they're not killing people and eating them anymore. And that's a great thing. That is great news. Now, it's, it's good to think about this for the Southeast Asians who are killing people and eating folks. Over in Spokane, um, just a few miles away, um, in, a, in, in all of the, the other, there's some good things over there. there. There are wonderful medical centers. There's a Planned Parenthood that um, is unique among Planned Parenthoods because it's one of the killing centers. It's where babies are aborted every week um, here in your area. When people are gotten by the gospel, they tend not to kill their children. So if you care about life in your community, if you care about the plight of the unborn, in your community, this is where the magic happens. This is where the good stuff happens. If you want to save lives, preach the gospel because those who uh, have been transformed by God tend not to murder their children. This is life and death stuff. And the feet of those who present the gospel, who share the gospel are beautiful because of all God does through the preached gospel. And it cannot be understated. It cannot be underestimated. Lives are transformed. Families are reconciled. Marriages are healed. Um, Wayward children are brought back in when God gets a hold of them through the gospel. All these different things, all these different problems that we deal with in our lives, the addictions, the heartaches, all of this solved by the gospel, by what the Holy Spirit does through the power of his preached word. So this is... This is why people who preach the gospel are beautiful. So having established that it is a worthy and good thing to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Paul adds one more thing that we need to to bring in um, to this this, uh, teaching so that we don't get too full of ourselves. I've just said that Christianity is not, a relation, is not a religion of mysticism where we wait for God to just get a hold of people as they're contemplating their navel in their room or walking down the street without any interaction with a believer whatsoever. But on the flip side, we are not witch doctors who have the magic formula that we recite this incantation and everything turns out right. We see this in verse 16. 
I'm going to back up to 15 just so we get the flow. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? Paul's bringing up this very important point that even as he said that the gospel is the way that God saves people, the proclamation of the gospel, the verbal communication of it is how that gospel gets to people, how the Holy Spirit reaches out and touches people's lives. There's an important thing to remember. Not everyone who hears the gospel is automatically saved by it. So we are not witch doctors who manipulate God. This is something that we're going to look about uh, look later uh, in this week as we go through um, the book of John chapter 3. It's, we're going to cover that um, on Tuesday, Lord willing. The idea that salvation is a work of God and it requires the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. So you don't need to be arrogant as you go forward with the gospel saying, well, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm a, I'm a hotshot guy. I'm going to get them to do what I want them to do and their lives are going to be better and my, look at me. Look at what I've done. Salvation is of the Lord, my friends. And the birth of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus says in John 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you um, do, uh, do not know, know where it comes from or where it was going, but you see it sounds. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot summon him through the incantation of the gospel and get him to do our will and save everyone around us. But the promise is, in verse 17, the summary of this, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Having Jesus dealt with um, people who had eyes to see but could not see, ears to hear but they could not hear. This is, uh, he uses this language, he reproves the disciples at times for having this idea. He reproves the Pharisees and the people around him for having this idea. This, this, even though they had these external things that worked, the problem with their hearing wasn't that their ears didn't work. The problem is that God hadn't done a work on their hearts because they were still engaged in idolatry. In the book of Psalms, um, we have this um, idea that uh, those who worship idols become like them, deaf, blind, powerless. And that's what we're dealing with here. And it takes the work of the Holy Spirit. It takes the regenerating power of God that raised Christ from the dead for idolatrous, hard-hearted, um, stopped-up ears, blind eyes to see and come alive. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Blind, deaf, broken, rebellious sinners get saved through the power of the gospel as the Holy Spirit wills it and works it. And this is glorious news for us. Now let's think through, we, we've tried to apply this as we go, but we need to, having worked through this text, having looked at um, the landmarks that God's put here, that he is concerned, Paul as a Christian man is concerned for a group of people who have not repented of their sins and believed the gospel. He's concerned because they're engaging in works righteousness. The fundamental error of every contrary religion 
is that you must do what it takes to make yourself right with whatever gods that be. And my friends, that's true of Islam. That's true of Mormonism. That's true of atheism. Atheism uh, will try to tell you that they're not a religion. They are a religion. They just worship human beings. You don't need to get right with um, whatever, whatever God is out there in the universe. You need to get right with what your fellow man thinks, with what uh, other people hold over you. You need to be justified by working to, to get right with the media or work to get right with these politicians or work to get right with these cultural analysis or whatever movement or whatever it is. It's a works-based religion, even though they're trying to say that they don't actually believe in a religion. And it never, ever works. Paul is concerned for works-righteous people of whom we were once who have not repented and believed the gospel. He talks about the gospel drawing uh, the nearness of redemption, that it's not some faraway thing that we've got to add to, but it's through the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of repentance and faith towards Christ that people get saved. And then he unpacks how God draws near. We've looked at some different ways that this applies. The big application, obviously, is to preach the gospel. Proclaim it. Write it down. Talk about it. Saturate yourself in it. Christian, this is your life to proclaim the goodness of the God that saved you. And not just in abstract, not just going around saying God is good all the time and all the time God is good. While that's true, we proclaim the goodness of God by proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for guilty sinners. We proclaim the goodness of God by talking about God's holiness, how he is loving and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We expound the goodness of God by talking about the fact that we were created in the image of God. That though he did not need us, though he did not um, require us or have to fill some void in his being, he made us and he made us to have a relationship with him, to interact with him, to talk, to think, to, to obey him, to live on this earth in a manner that brings him glory. We proclaim God's goodness by talking about how we're not good how our first parents disobeyed God. And from their first disobedience, we all disobeyed and continue to disobey. And how before Christ, we hated God. No matter how we tried to color it, no matter how we try to soft pedal it and go, you know what, I wasn't real bad. For my friends, I believe that um, through the proclamation of the gospel, God saved me when I was in second grade. I will tell you right now, before I came to Christ, based on what the word says, even though I can't remember everything about that, I hated God with all my being. I lived for myself. I, have, I do have memories of, of thoughts and actions where I disobeyed my parents or, or harbored some secret thought against them. Even that young, ladies and gentlemen, no matter when God saved you, no matter um, 
what age the people around you who have not yet come to Christ. The fundamental reality is they're apart from him. They hate him. They're rebels. They're broken. They're blind. They don't see. They need God's saving grace. And we expound the goodness of God by proclaiming that. We expound the goodness of God by telling of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the, the man who came to this earth 2,000 years ago, God in human flesh, who lived the life you and I could not live, who was tempted in every way as you and I are tempted. And every time you and I would have lied, Jesus never lied. Every time you and I would have stolen something, um, you, every time you and I would have looked with lust, which is adultery of the heart, every time you and I would have blasphemed God or worshiped something more than God, Jesus never did. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. Uh, a preacher by the name of Paul Washer brings out this very important point that we underestimate. We tend to think that um, Jesus' experience of this was uh, sort of uh, the way that we picture it, where it's just one test after another and there's no building or whatever else. Jesus is taking, and when he did not sin, an impossible weight on him. Temptation to the degree that you and I have never experienced. And he did that for his people. He lived the life you and I cannot live. He proclaimed that he is Lord of creation. He healed the sick, the blind, the mute, the destitute. And despite all the good things he did, despite the fact that he did not break God's law, and he did not break the laws of man, he was crucified on a Roman cross until he died, taking the wrath of God on himself for sinners. That's the goodness and kindness of God. Christ broken on the cross because the wrath of God came pounding down on him for his people, for guilty, vile, broken sinners. We proclaim the goodness of God by telling people that and more than that, we proclaim the goodness of God by saying that after he was, Jesus was buried, three days later, he walked out of the tomb, resurrected back to life by the Holy Spirit. And that that same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God is still at work in this world to save sinners and regenerate them and bring them back to life. If people will repent of their sins and place their trust in Christ who is Lord of all, heaven and earth. We proclaim the goodness of God by saying that you cannot merely assent with your mouth that God is Lord. You must turn from your sin, love the things that God loves, hates the things that God hates. Your affections need to be set completely on Christ and your trust. You don't bring anything to the table when God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? You don't say, because I went to North Star Baptist Church for weeks on end, because I gave to the poor, because I preached the gospel, because I did anything other than the completed work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. It's the only thing that can cover me. It's the only thing I plead. Belief and trust in Christ. This is the goodness of the gospel that we are to proclaim. However, we also need to consider something here. That it's not enough to be convicted in this moment that uh, you need to do evangelism more or do it better. Because it is entirely possible 
for you to have heard this message and to say, you know what? Yeah, that gospel thing is pretty good. And I recognize from God's word that it's something that I should do. And for you yourself not to be saved, not to be in Christ. Sinners can recognize, those who are uh, apart from Christ at the moment, can recognize the goodness of God's law, the goodness of his requirements for us. And you can just glom onto it, take it, and attach it to your own life and make it part of the list of things that you're trying to do to make your works righteousness work. So I want us to take a moment here and consider, are you born again? Have you repented of your sins and believed in the gospel? Are, is God's spirit alive and at work within you? Because if you try to apply the gospel, to, to preach the gospel apart from him, uh, the way a Puritan minister once put it, that's like being the best chef on this earth, making sumptuous and good meals for everyone around you and going home and eating stale bread and dirty water for your whole life. You may be the best chef in the world, but if you can't taste the goodness of what God has given you, then what does it matter? Because you're living on bread and water. It's like being a man who makes the best clothes for all these people. And there are people who are clothed in glory, but he himself is dressed in dirty rags. It's that worthless. It's that contradictory. It's that nonsensical. So before you rise up to preach the gospel, before you rise up to proclaim the goodness of God for sinners out in the world, the people that you recognize need to hear the gospel, you need to examine your heart. We need to examine our hearts. I need to examine my heart and see, am I in Christ? Has God's spirit, this power, this gospel, has it worked in my life? God's given us a multitude of ways to look at this, the fruit of the spirit. Do I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? Are these things growing in my life? When I... Uh, when I um, think of God and the gospel, am I thinking of ways that I can get in God's good graces? Or am I thankful to God for what he's done in Christ and living my life in response to that? Because if you're trying to leverage God for your own benefit, it's not going to work. You're going to be just like these Jewish people that Paul is concerned with. You're going to be just like the Mormon up the street. He's trying to do everything he can so that he can become a glorified God someday, like the gods before him. You're going to be like the Muslim who is so anxious about whether his God, whether Allah is going to accept him or not, that he prays and fasts and follows all of these pillars of Islam. That's that useless. And I don't want that for you today. So examine your hearts, test yourself, ask your friends and neighbors, those, your brothers and sisters, the people of this church who are around you, has God saved me? Are you in Christ? And having worked through that, live in the light of what God has given us here. This is for our benefit. This is for our good and it's for the good around us. And ladies and gentlemen, the, this is good and glorious. 
Josh mentioned that, um, you know, he's right there with you in the sense that uh, if you're concerned about preaching the gospel, if you're concerned and fearful um, about how to do this, he's right there with you. Let me just take a moment and say, Cole and I are right there with you. We're not here because we're, we're fearless evangelists. We're not here because we've got something in us that makes us better at this. We're not here because we have anything to bring to the table beyond what God has given us in his word. And the same power that has uh, given us the ability to communicate the gospel in the circumstances we've been able to is the same power, the same gospel, the same message that you can and should and Lord willing will use here in Hayden, Idaho. And that's exciting. So we are excited to do. Let's pray together. Let's contemplate the goodness of God. If you have any questions about anything I've said, come see me, Cole, or Josh at the end of this. We've got nothing better to do than talk about the gospel and how it can be applied to your life today. And let's go into this week expectant that God is going to do great things and that he's going to show kindness to us and show kindness to others in our community here. Will you pray with me? Gracious God and Father of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you. We praise you. You are good and glorious, and you have revealed your glory through the salvation of sinners, through the power of the gospel. We thank you. We praise you. We ask, Lord, that you would use this gospel to save your people, that if there's any among us who have not yet repented of their sins and trusted in your son, that they would do this without delay. For today is the day of salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would empower us to uh, obey your word in, in our community this week, that you would save your people from among us um, in our communities and in the apartment complexes and other places of this, these towns. And God, that your name would be glorified, not to us, but to your name be all the glory for what happens this week. Have mercy on us according to your steadfast love, which you showed for us in Christ. It's in his name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen.